But this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8. And uh, before we do so, I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you uh, that you're so good to us. We thank you, uh, Father, for all your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that this morning we can come to you, uh, that we can look at your son and see who he is, uh, see how it is that he's brought his kingdom and see what it means to follow you. And we do pray that prayer that we just sung, that you, as we do that, you would open the eyes of our hearts. Father, we, um, we pray for the, the children who've just gone out. We, we pray that as they are taught from your word, um, that they too would see you and see Jesus for who he is and know what it means to follow him. Father, please help us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, last week, um, if you weren't here, don't worry, we looked at Jesus feeding a crowd of uh, 4,000 people from almost nothing. And we saw that, that that meant that he was the king who provides everything that we need, and he's the king who satisfies us. Jesus is the king who satisfies us. And the question I want us to think about this week is what, what does that mean to us? You know, when you hear that Jesus satisfies you, what do you expect from that? Maybe it seems uh, that you have a purpose that you can now strive for. Uh, perhaps uh, it's success or it's status. You know, um, that so long as we strive for Jesus, actually work will always go well, that you'll be respected by people around you. Maybe it's comfort and security, uh, that, that ultimately life will be easier with Jesus, that he'll sort out all your problems. You know, this is how Jesus will satisfy us. I guess we can, we can so easily present Jesus to, to others in that way, don't we? Yeah, come to Jesus and life will be so much better. You'll gain so much from this king. Now look, maybe you do experience those things in life and maybe you do find satisfaction in them. Uh, I guess those are the kind of values that you find in a typical workplace, don't you? You strive for a goal, you're there to experience success and you'll be rewarded. But the really, really striking thing in this week's passage is what Jesus offers is the complete opposite. So in his kingdom, in li life with him, it is satisfying, but not in the ways that you would expect. His kingdom, to, to, to quote, uh, if you know the sort of Sunday school song, is a topsy-turvy Kingdom. It's a kingdom that is completely turned on its head. And so you see, we see life with him is not about striving, it's about surrendering. It's not about winning, it's about losing. It's not about gaining for ourselves, it's about giving ourselves. And it's not a life of comfort. 
It's a life of sacrifice. It's all completely upside down. Somebody else wants to listen. Um, <laughs> and um, what is perhaps, perhaps more striking this week is that kind of life is not optional. It is absolutely essential. It's necessary. We must have life turned on its head. We must. Because of who Jesus is and because of how he will bring his kingdom. So th- those, are the two, those are the two big questions we get answered in Mark's gospel, aren't they? So the first half, the half we've been looking at, considers who Jesus is. And what we've clearly seen is, is that he is the Christ or, or, or the Messiah. That means he's the king who brings God's promised kingdom to his people. We've seen that very clearly in chapters 1 to 8, that Jesus is the king. He's the ruler over everything, uh, doing things that only God can do and doing them for good. He brings this wonderful kingdom. Now, the second half of the book, chapters 11 to 16, shows very clearly how he is going to bring that kingdom to us. And in the middle section of this book, uh, chapters uh, uh, kind of 9 to 10 or or 8 to 10, you have these two questions answered together. So we see who he is, we see how he brings God's kingdom, and as you put them together, what comes out is what it means for us to be part of his kingdom, to live with Jesus. And this week, as we see who he is, as we, as we see how he will bring his kingdom, we see that actually there are three things that are absolutely necessary. Three things that are completely upside down, but three things that must happen for us to have life with him. Firstly, the king must be revealed. The king must be revealed. So Jesus and his disciples, they come to this place called Bethsaida and some people bring to him a a blind man and they they want Jesus to touch this man, to heal him. So Jesus takes him out of the village and what he does is he strangely kind of spits on his eyes and he touches his eyes. And uh, verse 23, Jesus asks him, you know, do do you see anything? Now the man gives a bit of a funny answer. Just have a look uh, down with me at verse 24. See there, he he looked up and he said, I see people... They look like trees walking around. See, the man can kind of see, but he only half sees. He he can make out the people, but but they don't look like people. Everything's a bit blurry. And so, what does Jesus do? He touches him again, verse 25. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, uh, sorry, That's verse 23. Verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hands on his man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. See, this is a two-stage healing. Jesus gradually opens the man's eyes. That's not a mistake. Uh, It doesn't mean that Jesus is not power enough to sort this guy out first time round. Actually, it's completely deliberate because it shows us exactly what is going on with his disciples. Do you remember? So last week, Jesus performed this miracle. He fed 4,000 people from seven loaves, something only God can do. 
and yet they, they, they couldn't see him at all. Uh, we ended last week with Jesus saying, look, do you not understand? So they've left everything to follow him. They've been with him. They can see all the things he does. They're amazed at what he does at times, but they can't see everything clearly. Clearly, they can't fully see who he is. But you see, Jesus hasn't finished with them. He doesn't walk away. Just as he goes back to the blind man to fully open his eyes, we see that's exactly what he now does with his disciples. He takes them to this place far away, Caesarea Philippi, and Mark kind of welcomes us into their conversation. Just read with me from verse 27. Jesus' disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Now Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples and what's clear is that they are like the blind man. Everything was a bit blurry. They couldn't make Jesus out and now, halfway through the book, we have this massive turning point. Jesus has opened their eyes and they see everything clearly. Peter says, you're the Messiah. That means you are God's chosen one. You're the one who has come to bring God's kingdom. You're the one who will reign over God's people. You are that king. Now, if we're here this morning and we know that Jesus is that king, I expect that our experience is is like that of the blind man. It's like that of the disciples. We, we don't see all of who Jesus is all at once. The Christian life is a gradual opening of our eyes where we wonderfully see Jesus more and more clearly. And, it, you know, he does that despite our slowness of heart, despite the fact that we mess up. He is gracious to allow us to see him. But the point is here that for us to come to him at all That is something that must happen. The king must be, must be revealed to us. That's the only way we can know him. That's the only way we can come to him. You know, if if you've noticed here, verse 28, and as we've seen throughout the gospel, plenty of other people have seen Jesus, haven't they? You know, that they've seen the things they've done, he's done, but all they can say, verse 28, is that he's John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet. And they look at him and they say, oh, he's this amazing man, he's a good teacher. But we can only look at him and say, you're the king, you're the Messiah, you're the king. If it's revealed to us, the king must be revealed to us. And so you see, Jesus is not a problem to be solved. It's not someone, you, can work, you, can, you can't work him out if you try hard enough. You know, we don't bow to this king if we're a certain type of person, if we're really good or we're really clever. So no one here this morning know Jesus, knows Jesus more because they went to university or because they've read lots or because they grew up in a Christian home or because they've lived a good life. Actually, 
the opposite is true. Yeah, we, we, we end up surrendering that the only way we can know him is by him revealing himself. He must be revealed. That's not the only thing we need, though. If we, if we, if we are to be part of God's kingdom, we don't just need to see the king. We need him to do something for us. And this is the second thing we see that the king must suffer, die, and rise. The king must suffer, die, and rise. So the disciples, they've wonderfully, they've had their eyes opened. They see the king that brings God's kingdom. And, and now the king begins to teach them about how he will bring God's kingdom. So this is a prediction of what we're about to see in chapters 11 to 16. So just have a look at verse 31 with me. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, God's kingdom will come through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can easily see, we can easily read that, can't we, here? But we can easily not think too much of it. The striking thing, though, is just that little four-letter word that Mark includes. Did you notice that? Just read with me from verse 31 again. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of law, and that he, do you see? He must be killed. You see, this had to happen. This king, this, this king we've seen through the first eight chapters of Mark, this king must suffer and die and rise for God's kingdom to come. Now look, if that's not shocking to you, it certainly was to the disciples. So shocking that in verse 32, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. It's like he's saying, this cannot be. It's unthinkable. Now he's not expecting it at all. The, the expectation of this king was that he would be a kind of a, a superhero type figure, that this king would come in glory and destroy all the Roman uh, enemies that were around and the people would live in peace. The expectation was a victory that would provide status and security, security in a kingdom that could never be destroyed. Yeah, they're, they're gearing up for a party here. As they see the king, they're... they're, they're you know, they're gearing up for this party, and instead Jesus promises total defeat, total destruction. It must happen. See, for Jesus, this kingdom comes not by winning, but by losing. It's like, um, yeah, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge football fan uh, at all, uh, but it's like, if you can imagine this, um, a new manager, you know, coming into a team in the Premiership, and as this, this guy comes in, that the players are expecting this guy to come in and say, 
I'm here to sort everything out. I've got this training program, and we're going to go out, and we're going to win, and we're going to win, and we're going to win, and glory will be ours, and we'll lift the trophy. And what Jesus teaches here is like a manager coming in and saying, we are deliberately going to go out and lose every single game and walk away with absolutely nothing. See, it's unthinkable that, that this would be the case. But Jesus says it must, it must happen. Now, the resurrection is in there, isn't it? And it might seem like some good news, but, but they weren't expecting that either. They were expecting a general resurrection at the end of time, not something that the Messiah would do after dying. And so while the disciples can see who Jesus is, they're actually, they're still like the blind man. Yet they, they, they can't see how his kingdom will come. And that's because they have their minds set on the things of man. Have a look at Jesus' reaction, verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter and his disciples, they're, con they're concerned about human enemies. You, you know, they're, 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 they think this kin is going to look great and powerful. They're concerned about a clear victory. God's concern is about our far greater enemies, the enemies of sin and the enemies of Satan. Those are the enemies that at this point have hold of Peter, who goes against Jesus, who, who wants to be God. And the only way for us to be free of those enemies was to Je for Jesus to take them upon himself, to be punished for our sin and to free us from the grip of Satan. He could only do that through his death and resurrection. And it's the only way that God's kingdom can come. The king had to suffer and die and rise again. It was a must. Now, that not only teaches us how amazing this king is, you know, that he's always uh, perfectly loving um, and that, that, you know, he would fix his mind on this goal, but it, but it also has massive implications for us. Third thing we see this morning, last thing we see, is that the king must be followed. The king must be followed. So we know, I think, from everything that we've seen in Mark, uh, in light of what Jesus does, that we must respond to him, that we, mu that we must follow him. And that sounds fine, doesn't it? That sounds great, up until the point we've just seen. That the, the way this king is heading is to his death. And so to follow him means suffering and rejection and dying. They're not quite in the same way that Jesus does. We, you know, we don't take God's wrath in the place of others, but in the sense that as we live for God as Jesus did, our lives will follow the same pattern, suffering and death. And as Jesus says here, that is not an option. It's something we must do. Have a look at verse 34. 
verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must. They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now look, there was a time where to follow the Lord Jesus would have clearly meant self-denial. So in Rome, at the time that Mark's Gospel was written, you, you probably would have lost everything as a Christian because you would have quite literally been nailed and even burned on a cross. You would have been crucified. You've followed this king in a very, very real way. And I guess it's important to say, look, there may be a time where that happens again. Yet that could happen. But even though it doesn't happen right here, right now, this verse is absolutely relevant for us. So the New Testament affirms that to follow Jesus is to stop trusting and living for anything else that we have in our lives. It's, it, it is to deny our very selves. To, to stop simply doing what we want and instead put our old sinful nature to death, to crucify it. Crucifying our wants and our desires. Now that only ever happens as we give our whole selves to the king. So listen, that there is no point in, in us going away from here simply trying harder to deny ourselves and think, you know, am I sacrificing enough today? Uh, am I denying myself enough today? Because at the end of the day, anybody can do that. Okay, my, my unconverted neighbour uh, can, can, can deny themselves. You know, and, and our hearts are so mixed up that actually, even as we sacrifice, we only do so in ways that suit us. Even in the church. So you see, one pastor, he tells this story of um, a member of his congregation who he grew up in the church and um, he served diligently. He made sacrifices um, of his time, his money, he went away to uni, he trained as a doctor, he got married, he had children, then, then he made this huge sacrifice, incredible sacrifice, he went away as a missionary to a different country and eventually he came back to, to um, his home church and he was made an elder and he gave all his time to the church and one day he came home and he told his wife that he was leaving her for a nurse at the hospital. Now, there's a pastor wrestled with this. He spoke to others about it. And this elder said to him, you know, this guy, he looked like he denied himself. He looked like he made a sacrifice. But do you know what? He was only ever doing what he wanted to do. 
he was never actually following Jesus. He only ever did what he wanted to do. So when his marriage became difficult, he did what he wanted to do. Do you see? Only by following Jesus can you truly deny yourself and take up your cross. You must follow Jesus. And the thing is, if I was to do that, if I was to look closely at this king and and genuinely follow his ways and consistently follow his teaching, I would find there are times where I'm not doing what I want to do. And there will be times where life is very, very uncomfortable for me, more like carrying a cross. This king must be followed. Now the question is, why? Why must you follow him? You know, is this just, is this just some mad religion where, where some guy dies on a cross and demands that actually that, that, that you must do the same? Why does, he, why, does he, why does he say you must do this? Well, we see the reason in verse 35. Let's have a look at that. For, this is the reason for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, to save your life or, or your soul it is, is to cling on to your existence here and now as the thing that you live for. So your job or your family or your reputation or your success or your comfort or your security. But the, this is the thing, those things will never save you. That they'll disappear, they'll go, and the irony is that so will your existence. You see, it's all upside down. That The things that we think will give us life now result in losing our lives because they will never, ever save you. They're not bad things. But in all of them, and over all of them, we must wholeheartedly follow Jesus, even if that means that we lose our success or we lose our reputation or we lose our comfort at home because only Jesus is the king who died for you and can save your life for the whole of eternity. And nothing is worth more than that. So even if somebody gave you all the status and glory and success, all the material possessions in the world. Can you imagine that? Mansions and swimming pools and, and, and private islands and jets and any car that you wanted, all the money in the bank in the world. Can you imagine if you gained everything, it still would not be worth your own soul. It would not be worth losing your life for that. Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The answer, of course, is nothing. Only Jesus can save your soul. That's why we must, must follow him. Even if it means denying ourselves and taking up our cross to do so. The alternative is rejection from him. See there, verse uh, 
38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and the holy angels. You see, if we don't have Jesus as our King now, he won't be our King for eternity. He's a King that must be followed. Ultimately, it's a question of life and death. That won't be comfortable, but it will be worthwhile. And it's actually, you know, that we find as we live for this king, eternity starts now. To follow this king gives you the best life now, even though you lose your life. C.S. Lewis famously put it, he said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And of course, the very centre of heaven, the person who's on the throne, is Jesus Christ. That's who we're aiming for, a king who must be followed. Now, I'm sure you noticed that, you know, Jesus tells the crowd and the disciples this off, off the back of Peter's rebuke. Uh, you know, the disciples can't understand, can they? That's why Peter rebukes them. can't understand that, that, that Jesus must die. And as long as they don't understand that, they won't be able to follow him in the same way. But Jesus promises that one day that won't be a problem. Just have a look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9. He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here, he's not referring to his, his, his coming. He's not referring to his second coming because he says there are some, there are some who will be there who will still be alive to see it. So what he's talking about that, you know, is that some will see the kingdom of God come with his death and resurrection. And then they will see clearly. And that is ultimately what all of us must see. Not just to see the king. Not just to have the promise of Jesus' death and resurrection, but to actually see that it happened. Only as we're convinced that he really did die for us will we keep turning to him for forgiveness and grace. Will, will, we, will we know that actually, because he took our sin, we, we can follow him. And only as we're convinced that he rose again, will we see that this life is not all that there is. And only then will we keep following him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you, uh, we, we, we pray to, to thank you that you are a, a, a king who reveals yourself to us. And not only that, but you're a king who came to suffer and die and rise for us. Father, you demand that we follow you. And we pray 
that regardless of how hard that might be, we, we would do that, that we would fix our minds on the things of God, the death and the resurrection of your son, and gladly follow you all the days of our life, losing our lives now to gain life with you for eternity. Father, please would you cause us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we, we have a, as I mentioned, we have a discussion time and uh, we found it helpful just to have a couple of minutes to, um, just to talk about what we've heard. Now look, if that, if that scares you to pieces, please don't worry. Uh, you can um, you know, stare out the window if you like or you can talk about, I don't know, football or something. Um, but it just allows you to have a bit of a discussion and then um, we, we will take time for questions or comments or thoughts um, after the, at the end of a couple of minutes. Okay, sorry to um, sorry to sort of interrupt your chat. Um, now's a good time to um, offer any additional thoughts to what's been said, or to comment on the passage, or to ask a question. Um, and if nobody wants to do that, that's fine. We'll sing. Um, any 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 questions at all? When, uh, sorry, Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. When you say the kill behind the scenes, um, yeah. what do you think he's referring to? Is he referring to. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. So, Jimmy's saying, um, just in case you didn't hear or, uh, for the recording, that um, when, when Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, wh- what does he mean by that? Is it a case that, um, you know, it, it's just, it, he's just focusing on the things of man and, and not God? Um, or. Uh, is it that he's Satan's led him astray at that point? I, I, I think both those things are true. I, I think um, you know uh, he he has his thoughts on on human concerns, um, and ultimately he he is he is wanting to be God. So he's wanting to um, he's wanting to tell Jesus how things should be done, and. Um, He's therefore treating him as an enemy, and, th- and that's that's what Satan is. He, he's he's the antichrist. He's he's against Jesus. Um, so I, I think both both those things are true, Jimmy. Yeah. Um, does that does that help? Yeah. Um, great. Um, anything else at all? Tell. Yeah, thanks, Tal. Yeah, thank you very much. And it, it, c- can I just say, like, on that, the 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 that the, there is there is nothing. Of course, there is nothing wrong with throwing yourself into a church and serving the church and doing things. I think the the the, the, the really the, the crunch point will come where you are put in a situation where you either follow Jesus or you don't. Uh, and the, th- the thing is, now and again, life throws those situations at us um, and that if, if you are if you are a Christian you can expect the Bible tells us this you can expect your faith to be tested in that way 
So, so God, will, will, God will put you in a situation um, and where you're not just doing what you want to do, where you're either forced to follow Jesus or not. Um, and, and the point here is that you must. You must follow him. Um, I guess the, the really important thing to say there, though, is like, so I, I, I know, I, I, um, I failed at that, you know? Um, so I know there are times uh, where I, I've, I've ducked, um, where I've been ashamed of Jesus, where, where, I've, where I've ducked an opportunity to talk about him or to follow one of his commands. And that's why we end with the death and resurrection, because actually there you find forgiveness and you find grace to turn to him again, to live for him again. Um, and we must, we must hold on to that. Um, okay, thanks, Tal. A- anything else? Richard? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so we, we kind of, uh, we scurse over that, but you're absolutely right. He, me and my words, and um, I, I guess the implication is that you, is that you submit to his teaching, um, uh, and therefore you're distinctive in a sinful and adulterous generation. Um, yeah, thanks Richard. Yeah. Uh, go on, Jimmy. Yeah, I think so. I think as you follow Jesus, you you inevitably um, deny yourself and take up your cross. Yeah, and I, I I guess the so at the time there was this real physical kind of reality to it that you just couldn't escape. Um, I think what the New Testament tells us and what is a reality for us now is that you, in a way you are constantly crucifying your old sinful nature. You're putting that to death, um, and every time you follow Jesus. You're basically saying, I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you're, you're killing your old self. You're, you're carrying your cross in that respect. I think the implication is that that's, that's, that's uncomfortable. You know, this, this, was a, this was an instrument of torture. Um, so that's, that's, there's never going to be painless or easy. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. Um, uh, and I guess the, the, the thing is, we, we can't do that without him. Like, we need... We need him with us in order to to do that. Um, Yeah.